0: Hi, and welcome to Studies in Taylor Swift. I'm Cleo, and this is the podcast where I use my PhD in English to interpret the songs of Taylor Swift. As those of you who have been subscribed for a while know, the podcast has kind of come and gone. I eventually got some funding from Queen Mary University of London that's kept it going for the last few months. That's about to run out, so I'm taking it off the air again while I sort of figure stuff out and figure out what the next incarnation of it will be. As part of that funding, it's technically impact funding, so it's about the the influence of the podcast on people's understanding of and enthusiasm for the study of literature, and specifically the use of critical theory, And so if you have the chance, I have put a link to a very short, very easy questionnaire, and I would be really grateful if you could just sort of fill that out and let me know whether the podcast has had any impact on your understanding of of those things. But otherwise, thank you for listening, and welcome to the final episode for now of Studies in Taylor Swift. It was on an airplane somewhere above Iceland sometime around midnight that I realized the double meaning of maroon. I'd been trying to write something about anti-hero and horror movie tropes, but maybe, you know, await that in some other apotheosis. But anyway, on this airplane, as we circled around Reykjavik, I was trying to figure out what Midnight's is. And I think the answer for me, at least as it appeared at the time in my sort of (laughs) tiredness-addled mind was around at this double meaning of maroon. Maroon by Taylor Swift When the morning came, we were cleaning incense off your vinyl shelf cause we lost track of time again, laughing with my feet in your lap, like you were my closest friend. How'd we end up on the floor anyway? You say, your roommate's cheap-ass screw-top rosé, that's how. I see you every day now, and I chose you, the one I was dancing with in New York, no shoes, looked up at the sky, and it was the burgundy on my t-shirt when you splashed your wine into me, and how the blood rushed into my cheeks, so scarlet it was, the mark you saw on my collarbone, the rust that grew between telephones, the lips I used to call home, so scarlet it was maroon when the silence came we were shaking blind and hazy how the hell did we lose sight of us again sobbing with your head in your hands ain't that the way shit always ends you were standing hollow eyed in the hallway carnations you had thought were roses that's us i feel you no matter what the rubies that i gave up And I lost you, the one I was dancing with, in New York, no shoes, looked up at the sky, and it was maroon. The burgundy on my t-shirt when you splashed your wine into me, and how the blood rushed into my cheeks, so scarlet it was, maroon. The mark you saw on my collarbone, the rust that grew between telephones, the lips I used to call home, so scarlet it was, maroon. And I wake with your memory over me, that's a real fucking legacy, legacy, it was maroon. And I wake with your memory over me, that's a real fucking legacy to leave. The burgundy on my t-shirt when you splashed your wine into me And how the blood rushed into my cheeks So scarlet it was maroon The mark you saw on my collarbone The rust that grew between telephones The lips I used to call home So scarlet it was maroon It was maroon It was maroon So, um... In some ways, as usual, Taylor Swift is writing about a relationship, and she's thinking specifically of what's left after the experience, the mark on a collarbone, the burgundy of spilled wine on a t-shirt. We've talked before about her interest in the marks left by other people. The speaker in Cardigan, for example, is marked like a bloodstain and has a tattoo kiss imprinted on her, as if smudged by someone's lipstick. This is a dangerous state to be in for a secondhand item of clothing that someone might decide is too marked to wear, like, for example, the wine stained dress that Taylor can't wear anymore in the song Clean. It's dangerous to be marked or stained if your personhood is clothing that other people can put on or decide not to. There is no such fear, I think, in maroon. The speaker of maroon is a person surrounded by temporary, damaged, underappreciated things – a stained t-shirt, carnations mistaken for roses, vinyl shelves sprinkled with incense. And she's damaged herself, with a mark on her collarbone, which would matter if there were any other state to be in but used secondhand, worn, underappreciated, undercared for. This is a world one senses without alternatives to damage, one in which rust grows between telephones, even cordless cellular ones. Streaks of metallic brownish-red growing in the air and hanging between two people trying and failing to communicate. We don't know what or who left the mark on her collarbone, but at least the person she loved noticed it. And whatever it was, it was, we are told, maroon. We are out of time, in two senses, at the end of something, and outside of ordinary chronology. There's a repetitiousness in this situation. It's the way things always end. We've talked before about Taylor's plays on temporality – whether it's the fearless re-recording with its sepia tones, the very specifically dated 1989, or the primeval timelessness of the folklorian woods. The illusions the fashion choices on the various covers of the vinyl editions of Midnight seem to make place us in the, ni- in the 1970s. And part of me thinks, for example, of Cronenberg's The Brood and Cronenbergian body horror in general. Sort of this, this idea of uh, birthing strange new mon- monsters amidst shades of 70s brown interior decorations. Uh, monsters that are all, as we find out, an antihero actually just Taylor Swift. The self is constantly birthing new aberrations, or else letting them in. In the song Would Have, Could Have, Should Have, she talks about a wound that couldn't heal, an entry into or exit from her bloodstream that seems to be infected, a body that's always left open. In almost the same breath, she talks about a tomb that won't close, a mausoleum gaping its jaws to the world, letting out the ghosts, or maybe beckoning the living in. Taylor Swift, in other words, is not okay. I think the thing that was confusing me about Midnight's is that I was having trouble accepting that it isn't a return to normal. I was thinking in in terms of Hegelian dialectic, Taking a step in one direction, folklore and evermore, and then a movement back towards lover that's sort of a synthesis of these two steps, leaving us in a third place, different but ultimately the product of what has come before. No movement, in other words, is lost. But what I realized over Iceland at midnight after I'd spent days trying to heal a foot injury that kept getting reinfected, having lost my sense of smell after getting COVID, and trying to figure out the logistics of getting a cat sitter to take my cat to the vet after she started peeing blood in my absence, is that maybe there is no actual growth here. No growth that is in the sense of progression through stages. No growth, just some worrying growths that will hopefully go away on their own. Maybe what has come before cannot be neatly repackaged into now. Maybe history goes not in steps, but in random fits. And anyway, I don't think you can figure out where or how you are until the wound heals, which I think it hasn't yet. I wanted to see thought I saw, midnights, as a return to normalcy, but it's not that. It's a series of moments that are outside of ordinary life, exaggerated, anxious, furious, terrified. It's above all else not normal, not about any kind of balanced sense of what really actually is, but about a feverish grasp of what might be. Now that I'm grown, I'm scared of ghosts, the speaker of would have, could have, should have says reasonably, awake at the witching hour and convinced she's being haunted, if only by her own emotions. We lost track of time again, the speaker of Maroon notes. How'd we end up on the floor anyway? The lover has an answer. Your roommate's cheap-ass screw-top rosé. That's how. And this may in fact be true. But when the lovers splashed their wine onto the speaker, it was burgundy, not pink. So maybe no one's memory is quite perfect, or maybe there's been a lot of different wine consumed, or maybe no one really knows how we ended up on the floor. Anyway, anyway, the whole song seems to bleed like spilled wine into different shades of red to set and seep the burgundy on my t-shirt when you splash your wine into me. And how the blood rushed into my cheeks, so scarlet. It was the mark you saw on my collarbone, the rust that grew between telephones, the lips I used to call home, so scarlet, she says, it was maroon. If something so scarlet it's maroon, it's picked up some rust on the way, or gotten brown, like dried blood. Something so scarlet it's maroon is not scarlet at all, in other words. But maybe it used to be. We've lost track of time again. Does anyone really know what's going on? How Taylor got the mark, the wound? Is her piecing together of the events any more real than anyone else's? If everyone involved in this mess is drunk, what is reality outside the spray of burgundy? When you splashed your wine into me, she says, not onto. She absorbs it. She takes it into her body. Maybe it becomes another mark on her. What are the rubies she gave up? Maybe the ruby slippers that take you home, though I honestly have no idea. But having no idea is kind of the point. Midnight's as an album begins with an embracing of haze. In the song of that name, she chooses lavender haze, preferring it to dealing with other people. But it also seems to be a byproduct of them asking her questions. I find it dizzying, she says. They're bringing up my history, but you aren't even listening. I feel a lavender haze creeping up on me. And in this state of being enveloped in haze of choosing haze, she abandons the world to COVID and the internet, two kinds of virality. Talk your talk and go viral. I just need this love spiral. Get it off your chest. Get it off my desk, she says. And the idea of, uh, of virality and something on your chest could could just as easily mean speaking as it could mean communicating a viral disease, um, sort of going through the stages of, of getting over COVID or venting your opinion to the world. But she also notes at the beginning of the song that she's suffering from melancholia, melancholy, depression. Literally, melancholy or melancholia means black bile, though perhaps here it's more like lavender haze. She's choosing timeless haze over discourse, over conversation. She's too dizzy to answer questions about history. I landed in Iceland at midnight. The depressurization left me without hearing for about 12 hours, a condition I learned is called airplane ear, and is not that uncommon. But at any rate, i somehow checked into the airport hotel without my hearing. Without two senses, hearing or smell, I felt almost ghost-like myself, like I was haunting this desolate landscape. Early the next morning, I got up and got in a bus to the Blue Lagoon, a man-made thermal bath with milky blue water. It was the longest night of the year, the solstice. So I swam all morning in the dark, looking up the stars, surrounded by mist rising off the water, half frozen and half warm. Am I healing, I thought. The wound on my foot had scabbed over at some point, so probably. To maroon someone, to be marooned, is to impose solitude on them, to have solitude imposed on you. To be left on an island somewhere, an island that sustains your life, but whose bounds circumscribe it. The OED defines it as to put a person ashore on a desolate island or coast, to be left there, especially as a form of punishment, or more generally, to place or leave in a position from which one cannot escape. If you can't place yourself in time, you're losing track of it, you're not able or not willing to face your own history. You're left in an eternal present, on an island, unable to communicate, afraid of your own memories, but not certain of your distance from them. Or, as the Speaker of Maroon says, sobbing with your head in your hands, ain't that the way shit always ends. But is it ending now? Has it already ended? Is it always ending and re-ending? Is this a cycle that repeats itself? How many times has the lover stood with their head in their hands? Is there a way of seeing them as a headless ghost clutching their sobbing appendage, haunting the speaker? I wake, she says, with your memory over me. That's a real fucking legacy to leave. The lover becomes a kind of ghost, a night terror hanging over her, a mark of something that happened, a mark that won't fade away from her memory, a vestige, a legacy, something freely given. Even the haze, perhaps, is haunted. I Think You're On Your Own Kid holds the central message of this album, the fullest expression of the existential solitude that I find throughout it. At the beginning, she's talking to someone, you. You're smoking with your boys, I touch my phone as if it's your face. Someone who isn't her. But this isn't the you in the title, I think. She gives up on talking to the first you, so she turns instead to another you. To tell them, you're on your own, kid. You always have been. Now I think she's talking to herself, her younger self, who she's realizing was always alone. The only you there is herself, alone, uncared for, free to run away. And as a further twist of the knife, she may be alone, but she's not unique. In the same breath, she says, I searched the party of better bodies just to learn that my dreams aren't rare. You're on your own, kid. You always have been. This is a moment not of despair, but of a strange kind of triumph. As alone, she chases the dream that isn't rare with everything she has. From sprinkler splashes to fireplace ashes, I gave my blood, sweat, and tears for this. Until finally she achieves a moment in a blood-soaked gown, probably uh, a kind of reinterpretation of the VMAs uh, via the image of Carrie in her prom dress. Um, in which she finally sees something no one can take away, a realization that she can gain even in the moment of loss. I looked around in a blood-soaked gown, and I saw something they can't take away, because there were pages turned with the bridges burned. Everything you lose is a step you take. I think that's another meaning of maroon, or red, the blood on a gown, the blood, sweat, and tears you gave. Red is a mark of rareness, at least in stake. You still have some blood in you to give. Red is solitude, the blood-stained dress setting you apart, marking you as alone, as lonely, as unique, as fully individual. Blood is something that you lose, that you give, but it's also something that leaves a stain, a mark, that isn't easily washed away. Sometimes for Taylor Swift, a bloodstain is the emotional impact of an affair. As the speaker in Cardigan says, you marked me like a bloodstain. But here, blood is sort of the, the mark that Taylor's talent makes as it leaves her. The mark that she leaves behind, which is also a mark that she has to wear. A mark that she's soaked in, but one that she's indelibly left on the world. Red is love and loss, life and death. Everything you lose is a step you take. She's Carrie, it seems, at first, prepared to take her revenge on her small-town tormentors. But she comes to some other determination, one based in accepting loss and making the most of it, or maybe just in seizing the day, a kind of hard, cold, fatalistic materialism, a carpe diem rooted in the inevitability of loss, as they all are. So make the friendship bracelets, she says. Take the moment and taste it. You've got no reason to be afraid. You're on your own, kid yeah, you can face this, you're on your own, kid, you always have been. As the Roman poet Horace says, cut back your long hopes, don't try to see the future, it's better to suffer whatever will be, so just drink wine and seize the day. And I think there are worse things to believe. You're on your own, but on the other hand, you always have been. So maybe that's not so bad. Thank you for listening to Studies in Taylor Swift. Music is Happy Strumming by Audionautics.